Our text this morning is Genesis 35, and we're looking at the subject of Jacob's relocation to Bethel and beyond. From your bulletin outline, you can see that he is charged to break camp and move to Bethel. It's clear from our text that the town of Shechem is not where God wanted Jacob to be. He had moved there. He had bought a plot of ground to set up his camp, and he had done so without God's directive. And his stay at Shechem was horrendous for his daughter Dinah, and his son's worse fury against the town folk made it impossible to establish cordial relationships. And so we have in verse 1 God's directive. Go up to Bethel, Bethel excuse me, settle there, build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Wouldn't you just love to have such a clear directive from God concerning your future? That's what's here. None of us hears a voice from God calling us and telling us where to move, where to worship, where to settle, or even on such matters as whom to marry, what vocation in life we should pursue, what part of the country we should live. There's no voice of God on any of that. But what we are not left, we are not left in dark concerning these things. What do we have? Well, we do have the illumination of God's Spirit using, get it now, scriptural principles to lead and direct us to the path that we should take. As David reminds us, your word, he's speaking to God, your word lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous Laws, Psalm 119, verse 105 and 106. And by the way, the whole psalm, I'm sure you know, is dealing with the scripture and how the scriptures of God, the laws of God, the word of God is indeed uh, the uh, lamp for our pathway. Now, the scriptures are not a voice from heaven, but they are a word from heaven. And the beauty of the written word is its timeless message, principles of life open for study and review, that does not rely upon our faulty memory. What was that God said to me? Or worse, our sinful distortions. Inspiration, can I put it that way? Inspiration seals the word of the book the way God intended those words to read, and we find in them a stone of solidarity unmarred by time or wicked speculation concerning the will of God for our lives. And everyone that has a copy of the book, and in our country that's not a problem, the Bible can be found. I think too that there is the added advantage that we do not have to wait for a word from God before we can act. I mean, we have his directive on all areas of life, leaving no doubt as to what our course of action should be if we really want to know. If you have a concordance, and everybody, every family at least should have concordance, you can go through your concordance and pick out any subject that you want to study in the book, 
And it'll give you tons of verses to go to to study that subject. And that's how we learn from God's word. We have directives for everything. Now with the patriarchs and the Old Testament saints, long periods of time would pass with no voice from God. Why don't you think about that? Long periods. 400 years, by the way, between the Old Testament when God stopped speaking, Malachi, to when he began to speak again, the Gospel of Matthew. Four centuries. Hello? No word from God. Now they could go back, yes, they could go back and read the books of the law, Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. They could read the prophets of the Old Testament. They could read the Psalms and they could read the Proverbs and those things. And that's what they had to rely on. But no new word was coming during that period of time. So even God's people would sometimes take a wrong turn in the road, as did Jacob. No word from God where to go when he left Laban, his, his father-in-law. So he settled in Shechem and it got him into trouble. But having said that, there is also a downside in all of this as well. And we need to think about this. Jesus put it this way. From everyone who has been given much, what? Much will be demanded. From the one who is entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Luke 12, verse 48. You see how incumbent it is for us to be students of the Bible. We do. History and his will for his people. Peter put it this way. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us very great and precious promises. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. We're not shortchanged. We are extremely blessed to have an engrafe, a written record of the word of God. But what I am saying, and with that comes a tremendous responsibility, you cannot say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I didn't know. If you don't know, it's because you weren't reading the book. Now secondly, with that said, I want you to note that Jacob is conscious that to approach the true God of heaven demands proper preparation. Look at, he goes on to say, it will require that his household abandon their pagan idols and beliefs. And maybe that was a shocker for some of you to think, well, wait a minute, Jacob is uh, the son of uh, God in, in the spiritual sense, and you mean to tell me his family and his servants are carrying, carrying around idols? Yeah, they were. They, they're going to have to grow into these things and into their understanding. And so you have this uh, command given by them. So Jacob said, verse 2, to his household and to all who were with him, might have been hundreds of servants. Remember, Abraham had over 300 servants in his household. So this could be a lot of people. Here's what he said. Get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come and let us go up 
to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God. Look at verse 4, it tells their response. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak of Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Now here's four spiritual lessons for you from this, uh, from this uh, procedure. Number one, it is impossible for genuine worship of God to occur with one foot fixed in idolatry and the other in Bethel, the house of God. You just can't do it. You just can't worship God that way. Primarily because God won't have it that way. It must be as Jacob exhorted, get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you. Time and time again, the nation of Israel did not understand this and they refused. And in this way, they, they counted God simply as, well, just another alleged deity in their pantheon of gods. Remember, in our early history of Abraham, he was an idolater, along with Terah, his father. This is the kind of culture they came out of. They didn't come out of that being believers in Jehovah. They had to learn about Jehovah, the only true God. And when you ignore this, people have ignored the clear word of God concerning God's unique oneness. I'm going to give you some scriptures here from Isaiah well, actually, they're all from Isaiah. Isaiah 44. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first. I am the last. And apart from me, there is no God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And what is yet to come? Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? See, God is really putting it to him, isn't he? He's, he's saying, I want you to think about your history and what, what's been done for you and, and what you, you should know. He goes on. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. Isaiah 44, 6 through 11. God is, you know, he's putting it right on the line. The only God you know and the only, is the only God there is. And the craftsmen might be busy with their, you know, in their little workshops making idols and so forth, but they're working on nothing. They're working on things that are going to bring terror to them and infamy. Again, Isaiah 42, verse 18 I am the Lord, that's my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Isaiah 42, verse 8. One more from Isaiah. 
You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some foreign God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from the ancient days I am He. No one can deliver you out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Wow. Pretty powerful statements from God to His people that there is only one God. I'll tell you what, if the Jews have one truth down in their theology, it's this, that God is one. Not multiple. Not pantheon. Not like the Greeks that had a God for this and a God for that. The God of fire, the God of light, the God of snow, the God of rain, and on and on and on. And, and the Hindus outdo them. They have thousands of deities in the Hindu faith. And God says, you know, there's only one. I know about the foreign gods, but what are they compared to me? They're the work of men's hands, craftsmanship, show their ignorance. So the first thing that we learn here is in order to worship God, you've got to get rid of your idols. You've got to put them aside. Secondly, he says, purify yourselves and change your clothes and then come up to Bethel. Brother, you know what this is? This is a call... To repentance. Yes, get rid of your idols. And then also resolve not to slip back into your old sinful ways again. And he says, change your clothes. We, we would think of that command perhaps, something like this to us. Be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Peter put it this way. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. 1 Peter 4, verse 3. Idolatry was very much part of Peter's world as well. Now, what are, what's this business of clothes? Well, one's dress is indicative of the real person. Not just the outward appearance, but of the deeds done from the heart. For example... In the Revelation, Jesus addresses the various churches of the day. And it's revealing that his complaint against Sardis was this. Church of Sardis. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now that's a rebuke for their apathy. That's a rebuke to Sardis for their indolence, for the fact that they haven't gotten God's work done. It isn't that they didn't know it. It's that they didn't do it. But, but, now observe his commendation for those Sardinians whose accomplishments were godly, were righteous, so it wasn't the whole church. Here's the way he words it. Yet you have a few people in Sardis 
who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Revelation 3, verse 4 and 5. So here, their dress, brethren, referred to their actions, their behavior, and unlike their contemporary or the members of, some of which were the members of their own church, they did not enter into the sinful lifestyle of the world. And John describes that under inspiration as them wearing righteous clothes or white clothes as opposed to what else was going on in the community. Contrast that with Revelation 17 verse 4 and following. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and with glittering gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And this title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Revelation 17, verse 3 through 6. We could hardly conceive of a more obnoxious description of a person's sinful deeds, covered with blasphemous names, a golden cup filled with filthy adulteries, her overall demeanor, drunk, yes, but drunk on the shed blood of the saints and those who bore testimony to Jesus, a murderer at heart. And what is it that depicts her with these wicked deeds? It is her dress of purple and scarlet and glittering gold and precious stones and pearls. All the opulence all the sensuality of a mind that's sold over completely to the indulgence of the flesh and she's drunk on the shed blood of the saints so Jacob's charge is this purify yourselves and change your clothes and that charge are two sides of the same coin they are like Joshua the priest in the vision of Zechariah that he saw. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who are standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. Here's what it stands for. And I will put rich garments on you. Zechariah 3, verse 3 and 4. So, when Jacob told his household to change their clothes, he was charging them to purge the sinful behavior from their lives through repentance and faith. Clean up your rack. And it would be a colloquialism for our day. Clean up your rack. Take a bath. Scrub your clothes. Use lye soap. Do whatever it takes to get rid of the filth. 
in your life. Now, we know that no soap, lie or otherwise, can erase sin. But the point is that there was a deep iniquity in their lives. They're going to go to Bethel to worship God. They need to rid themselves of those sins. Here's the third lesson, the people's response. What was it? Well, yes, they turned over their idols to Jacob as commanded. But notice verse 4, particularly the last part of the verse. Along with their idols, they handed over as well the golden rings in their ears. I find that very interesting. Because looking in the text, and particularly at Jacob's charge to the people, I don't find any command for them to forfeit their jewelry. They did this on their own without God, or without rather Jacob, prodding them to do so. Do you know, this is the way real repentance works. The lessons that I point out for you in our studies are simply intended to get you to think and to reason how in fact you yourself will repent and cleanse your life of the sinful garments that you wear, undetected by onlookers, yes, but known to you when you look into the mirror of God's word. It's to get you to think about, you know, there's some things in my life that really need to change. What do we know from the Bible about the connection between jewelry and idolatry? Well, in their later history, Jacob's descendants were miraculously delivered from Egyptian bondage, and they set up camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. And while Moses delayed from coming down from the mountain where God was inscribing for him the ten words of the law, the people were at the foot of the mountain prodding Aaron, his brother, to create for them a visible God of worship. Listen to Aaron. Well, take off the gold earrings your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. So you have reference here to the golden calf. Exodus 32, verses 2 through 4. But, but, in these early days... To their credit, Jacob's household did not have to be commanded to give away their gold earrings along with their household idols. They knew all too pointedly that their gold jewelry was but the raw material for future idolatry. And so they chose to remove that temptation as part of their purification ritual to meet with the true God of heaven at Bethel. You know, in our day, the world consistently and relentlessly flashes the glitter of gold and silver before us as a means of securing our future and protecting us from impending runaway inflation. Buy gold, buy silver, buy gold, buy silver. The actor William Devane peddles gold and silver sales to the TV public time and time again throughout the day. And he closes his sales pitch asking, what's in your safe? Yeah. Now there's nothing sinful about buying gold or silver. 
as an investment any more than buying some other commodity or stocks and bonds. The sin comes in when these valuable minerals are viewed as our salvation, our savior. I'm going to be saved from financial ruin because I have stockpiled enough gold and silver. And fear plays a large part in the sales pitch. Fear causes rational people to become irrational. It causes Christian people to forfeit their faith. Can I say it this way? That Jacob's household had the good faith-filled sense to realize that if they kept their jewelry, the day might come when they would be tempted to revert to their old idolatrous ways of melting and molding gold idols. Jesus warned us, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Things that cause people to sin. He goes on. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew 18, verse 7 through 9. Now Jesus is not telling us to literally Gouge out our eyes or cut off our foot or cut off our hands. Uh, Muslims do that, by the way. That's their idea of interpreting. What he is calling for is radical repentance. If you find that the offending member in your body is your eye, what you're looking at, then change what you're looking at. And change it so radically that you will be spared Judgment, same way with what are your hands doing? Where are your feet taking you? It's radical repentance, and may I say that that's the only repentance there is, is radical repentance. You can't play with fire, you can't play with sin, and say, well, I've been repentant. And that is what Jacob is saying. Fourth lesson here. It's found in verse 4. It tells us Jacob buried them, the idols and the earrings, under the oak at Shechem. Burying something is a figurative way of saying that, well, we're through with it. We're through with it. It's dead to us. It no longer has any part in our lives. Some weeks ago, we buried my father. I can't call on him anymore. I can't take his advice. His check won't be coming into this church as being supportive of the church. There is a sense in which everything that relates to my dad is dead. Further down in the text, it says, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died. And what? Verse 8, she was buried. Yeah, right, of course. Further still, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Verse 19, and was buried on the way to Bethlehem. So he's traveling, you see. 
Last of all, Isaac, Jacob's father, died at the age of 180, verse 28. He was buried by Jacob and Esau, verse 29. That's what we do with things that are no longer in, interactive with us anymore. And in regard to friends and relatives and family members, when we bury these that we love, we usually erect a marker, something like that. Jacob did that stone pillar placed over Rachel's tomb, verse 19, in case he wants to go back. Yeah, he puts a marker there. He wants to be able to go back on occasion and remember those he loved or reflect on what they meant. We do the same. But sometimes, as here, sometimes as here, with the idol gods, with the earrings of Jacob's household, the things buried are meant to be forgotten and to remain forever out of their consciousness. They are bad things. They are not worth remembering. They are things that led these people astray and for which they suffered much sorrow and pain. There's value in this kind of burying. There's value in no marker to locate the burial site. Micah the prophet testified, You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Micah 7, verse 19 and 20. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Hallelujah. And it goes on. And where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, 15 through 18. You know what that is? That's a blessed burial in the depths of the sea. And that's blessed forgetfulness by God. Do we really want God to remember our sins and our iniquities? Now they're paid for by the blood of Christ. And this is willful. Sounds strange, but it's willful for forgetfulness on God's part. Because God what? Omniscient. He knows all things. But with regard to our forgiven sin, he chooses not to remember. He chooses not to hold those sins against us. I call that blessed forgetfulness. Now, what were the results of Jacob's call to repentance? Well, verse 5. The terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. This is miraculous. After what happened in the town of Shechem, when Simon and Levi killed all the men, no one pursues them. They can just leave Shechem and head for Bethel. And everything's cool. 
When Simon and Levi struck all the dead, all the men of Shechem, Jacob expressed this fear to his son. Here's what he said. You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against us and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Chapter 34, verse 30. He's right. I mean, if you're just talking about odds, the size of... We got my family against all these Perizzites and Hivites against us. Well, now in chapter 35, Jacob and his household are still in Shechem. Now they're heading to Bethel, uh, but they have not departed yet. So in a sense, they're sitting ducks ripe for an attack of a Hivite federation which might be mustered against them. And to be sure, the Hivites have enough hurt, enough anguish from the slaughter of their men to launch an attack on Jacob and his household. So why didn't the Hivites strike while they had opportunity? Why didn't they unite with the Perizzites as Jacob feared and with monumental force wipe Jacob and his household off the face of the map? Answer verse 5. The terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Another question. What was it that emboldened God to terrorize the Canaanites to leave Jacob and his household alone? If you answer, well, I think it's because Jacob and his household were the people of God, and so God just jumped in to rescue them. Wrong answer. The Old Testament is replete with times when Israel, the people of God, were profoundly whipped or destroyed, or carried off into captivity by pagan nations. How could that be? God used such nations to spank his people for disobedience, for their idolatry, for forsaking him, and to pull them back to cause them to turn around and return in repentance. So you can't just say, well, it's, we're the people of God, and of course he's going to come to our rescue. That may be, or it may not be. The correct answer is this. It was the repentance of God's people that activated the intervention of God on their behalf. I mean, think about what the context is here. Jacob says, you've got to get rid of your idols. You've got to clean your clothes. You've got to stop being what you are. Got to get ready to meet the holy God that we're going to build an altar at Bethel. And what did they do? They handed over their idols and they forfeited their gold earrings. And they changed their clothes. They purified themselves in anticipation of worshiping God. And Jacob buried these symbols of their rebellion to God where no one else could find them and revive them. And then they marched towards Bethel. Preparation to meet with God. Repentance in us, brethren, always emboldens God to forgive us our sins and to draw near to us. I may put it to you in his words. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
Righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Psalm 34, verse 18 and 19. God is near to the brokenhearted, not the arrogant. Not those that walk around sinning and saying, Oh, God won't do anything to me. I'm one of his people. Again, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse 17. Both, both of those verses, were one from Psalm 34, one from Psalm 51, were taken from Psalms that David wrote concerning his adultery with Bathsheba. And he wants God back in his life. And he repents. This God did for Jacob and his household when they turned from their idols to God alone. That was the first result. The second result is that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. You ever wonder how the nation of Israel got its name? This is it. This is where it goes to. We've learned in this study of a number of people whose names were changed by God. Abram, A-B-R-A-M, Abram means exalted father, was changed to Abraham, father of many nations. Sarai, S-A-R-A-I, means princess, that is, an heir that's waiting to rule, but yet it hasn't materialized. Her name was changed from Sarah, from princess, to Sarah, Noble woman, in the sense that she is a mother of nations and kings issuing from her. Genesis 17, verse 16. The Brits just celebrated Queen Elizabeth's 90th birthday. Was it yesterday? Either yesterday or the day before. What pomp and circumstance. It was great pageantry. Well, there was a time when she was in her 20s and just a princess. No rule at all. And then she became the queen. Yet, Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, these name changes had more to do with Abraham and Sarah's destiny to become a great nation in fulfillment of the covenant of God made with Abraham when he was in Ur. But, but, Jacob's name change is unique. Verse 10, God said unto him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. And so he named him Israel. The name Jacob did not refer to what he would become in terms of future blessing, as in the case of Abraham and Sarah. Rather, his name was indicative of what he was by nature. The name Jacob means a deceiver, a liar, a swindler, a con man, a person in whom no one would ever place their trust. That's not a very nice name. How'd you like to go through life with the name liar? Rachel 
Meeting Jacob at the well, reporting back to her father, Laban. Father, I want you to meet your sister's son, Mr. Liar, at the well, came and watered all the sheep for me. Or what about Laban himself, deciding to hire Jacob to care for his sheep? Uh, Mr. Swindler, tell me what your wages will be. None of this is complimentary. But con artist was every bit a description of Jacob before God confronted him and changed him. But this changed man, this changed man should not have to bear the name of his pagan and sinful past. Men may take a prove it to me posture towards a person who claims to have changed but God needs no such thing as uh, like a probationary period to see if the change of heart really is true the God who forgave Jacob changed Jacob and the changed Jacob should not have to live the rest of his life known as the swindler His new name identifies his new nature. Israel, that name, means one who has struggled with God and with men and has prevailed as one. Chapter 32, verse 28. In that wrestling match, Jacob held on to God despite his sinful past, and he wrestled with God and with his own sinful self until God could do no less than bless a repentant sinner. You know, when you're going to talk about repentance with God concerning your sins, it may take a wrestling match for you to do that because the devil's going to suggest that you are too much a sinner to be forgiven. You're too wicked a person for God to ever want you in his family. And that's just the lies of Satan. My grandma had a saying, and I'm sure it's not, it was not original with her. It was something of her generation. And the saying was this. You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Did anyone ever hear that? Some of the older ones with gray hair here going, yes, others, what's that mean? It means this. There's no soft silk fiber in a pig's ear. Rather, a pig's ear is rough like a Brillo pad. And so silk softness from coarseness is just impossible. And she'd whip that out every once in a while when she was talking about people can't change or won't change or this can't change or that can't change. And she'd, she'd make that statement. Ah, but you know, with God, all things are possible. Did you, do you know that? That same grandma of mine was married to a confirmed drunkard who spent his earnings on boozing with the railroad buddies whom grandma would often find sleeping on the living room sofa in the morning. And what would she do? She would feed them breakfast before sending them on her way. But her prayers for Grandpa were endless. And one day, on a marvelous day, 
God broke through the darkness and Grandpa became a forgiven and changed child of God who lived out his remaining years a thankful, loving, generous silk purse with no remembrance of his sow's ear beginning. The drunkenness was gone. Can I say and will say, God can and will do the same for any repentant sinner. Don't say, I'm a lost cause. I've heard people say that. God will never forgive me. If he knew what I, he does know. Everything you've ever done. He knows everything you've ever thought. It's a tremendous lesson to learn. And then as a last lesson, note that Israel was confirmed by God as the new recipient of the covenant blessings promised to Abraham and Isaac. Verse 11, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. And then God went up from him at the place where he had spoken or talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it. And he also poured oil on it. And Jacob called the place where God had talked with him. Bethel, the house of God. May the Lord of glory who descended his throne to save sinners talk to you and talk to me today and show himself as God Almighty, mighty to save all who will repent of their sins, all who will call upon him. He has promised he will do that. Our Lord, we just pray and ask your blessing upon the truth of your word. We have a lot of things that we could say with regard to how unworthy we are or what we think about God or what we think about spiritual things. But the only truth that is on all these things is found in your word, the Holy Bible. And here we see this, this, this swindler guy, this liar, this deceiver who had a history of uh, robbing his brother of his birthright and his blessing and all the other things that Jacob was involved in, we see him changed into a new man, a wonderful new man, now instructing his family and his household and his servants that they need to get rid of their idols and their false gods and repent of their sin, purify themselves and come before God and trust him. And wonder of wonders, they do it, they did it. They believed in God Almighty. Lord, no matter our sin, it can be piled high to heaven. And yet you can wipe it all away and bury it in the depths of the sea. You are the Lord Almighty. Nothing is beyond your power. I pray for every lost sinner here today that has never come to repentance. For some reason or other, they have thought they were either okay or not as bad as God's word says they are. Or they have doubts about whether they would be received well by you. Satan would suggest that they're too bad to be part of the family of God. 
Whatever it is that's hindering them, I pray that today you will remove all of that. We thank you, Lord, for your great grace to sinners. If the swindler and the liar and the deceiver and the con artist can be saved, Lord, you can save whom you will. Bless these truths to our heart, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 485 in the Red Hymnal. Four hundred eighty-five.